Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 85, Revelation, Where is Babylon? And in this episode, I do actually intend to do something a little bit different. Um, There have been a lot of thoughts and concerns and things weighing on my mind for several months, even several years, um, culminating in the past several weeks with the death of George Floyd and many riots going on in our country, mixed with the fact that this past weekend in the liturgical church calendar, we celebrated Pentecost, which is the birth of the church and ultimately what the church's purpose and role is in the world. And as we've been where we are in the book of Revelation, particularly as John identifies the great city, which we know in Revelation refers to Babylon, and yet in chapter 11, John identifies the great city as the very ones who killed Jesus. And so what I wanted to do was take just a time to kind of talk about a lot of thoughts that are swirling in my mind. I know there's a lot of discussion going on online. Some of it is helpful. Much of it is not. And I'm not a quick-witted responder on social media, on Facebook or Instagram. I like to think my way through things a little slower And I'd like to invite you into my thought process as we work our way through some passages of the Bible and try to identify what is it that is causing so much angst in our world right now, even amongst Christians. And so I offer to you kind of, this probably will be a longer show than normal. And um, I don't know any other way for me to work through my thoughts than to do it with you. So I offer to you the episode, Where is Babylon? What I want to do on this episode is try to help us get underneath um, the veneer. Let, let, let's, go, let's go below the surface a little bit. And I think a lot of the, the Bible encourages us to do that by showing us the, the sneaky and subtle ways in which we can believe lies or we can think that certain things um, are one way when in fact there's something very different. And we, we've looked at a number of those episodes on this podcast talking about the subtleties of idolatry, talking about the subtleties of looking at America as a Christian nation and, and believing that that is true. And then what does that mean for the way I live the rest of my life? But what Revelation 11 surfaced for us, the last episode was the fact that Jerusalem is the place where Jesus was was killed. He was killed by his own people who were threatened by his version of what the kingdom of God actually meant versus what they had hoped the kingdom of God would mean, not just for their own blessing, but quite certainly for the destruction of their under you know of their so-called enemies, right? The the Romans or any other Gentile nation that they didn't care for. And when John describes the place where Jesus was crucified in order to exhort the followers of Jesus to faithfully witness to him unto death as well, he wraps up some themes and ideas by by naming some places in the Old Testament, Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And John identifies them in chapter 11, verse 8, as symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. But he also calls the place where Jesus was killed and the people that are opposing him as the great city. And in Revelation 18, a handful of times, John identifies Babylon as the great city. And so what I want to look at is we talk about Babylon and you think, what is Babylon? You know, where is Babylon? Who is Babylon? What is Babylon? And so I thought I would 
title this just where is Babylon because some of the easy answers that are given by Christians or that some even truly believe is we get focused on thinking that it's a particular place or it's a particular group of people. And typically individuals tend to think that it's somebody other than them when they look at these kinds of things. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to back all the way up to the very beginning of the Bible once again. I'm not going to repeat everything I've said in previous episodes. I might redirect you to other episodes, but the more I think about this, this is just so ingrained in me. I may not even remember what I've said in previous episodes, but what I want to do is I want to go all the way back to the beginning and just lay out what I think is God's intention for us as people and how we can get caught up in misguided mindsets without even realizing it. And so if you go all the way back to the beginning of your Bibles, you'll know that the Lord made mankind in his own image. And we've had a lot to say about image bearing. And he commissioned us to rule over the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Then in chapter three, the way that I understand the fall is that when the Lord gave to Adam and Eve the freedom to eat from any tree in the garden, he's telling them, you are free to rule over this creation as my stewards, as my image bearers, rule over it on my behalf. And you are free to enjoy all of the parts of this creation while you are ruling over it. You just cannot take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a simplistic way to think about what happens when Adam and Eve take from this tree is to simply look at it as God said, don't do this. Adam and Eve did this, therefore they sinned. I recently read a review of a book online where a person was very upset over someone who was taking the time in his book to thoroughly discuss what the fall entailed. And this reviewer said, oh, he's just confusing the matter. He's making it way too complicated. It seems simple enough to me. God said, don't eat from the tree. They ate that sin, you know, open and shut case. But I'd like to submit to you that I think half the reason why we have so much angst in our world today is because of, the, of a failure to understand what actually took place in the fall. In the fall of man, the Lord said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree represents the way mankind is going to rule over the earth is going to be to take his directives, to take his guidelines from the Lord himself and let the Lord reserve the right to define good and evil for the world. When mankind reaches out and decides under the deception of the serpent that he believes choosing for himself what is good and what is evil is a better way to rule, then enters sin. And what's really interesting when you start to look at the sin is you recognize that when man takes for himself what is good and what is evil, that is a piece of ownership. He's basically deciding, I'm going to receive life. I'm going to receive strength. I'm going to receive my identity from what I can reach out of my own accord and take for myself. I'm not going to receive my strength. I'm not going to receive my identity and I'm not going to receive my ability to rule from the Lord. I'm not gonna receive it freely from him as a gift. Instead, I'm gonna determine within myself which things are good and which things are evil and I'm gonna take that upon myself and then I'm going to quote unquote rule the world with that knowledge. 
Now, I want you to hold on to that mindset because this is what the biblical story begins with. And as it spins out, we're going to see people, those who do not claim to know the Lord and those who claim to know the Lord are both going to need to come face to face with the idea that mankind ever since falling into sin likes the idea of choosing for himself which things are good and which things are evil and then sizing up himself or herself according to that standard and most likely approving of himself or herself and sizing other people up according to the standard that you've set for yourself. And most likely the way sin works in the world is that we tend to disapprove of the sorts of behaviors and lifestyles that those unlike us choose to live. And so what we celebrated this past weekend in our church service was, the, was um, Pentecost from Acts chapter two. It was Jesus's promise that after he ascends to the father, after enduring suffering and death on our behalf and was raised from the grave three days later, when he ascended to the father, he would be able to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very same spirit that empowered Jesus's life on earth. He would be able to pour out that Holy Spirit onto all flesh, onto all the church. And that's in fact what we see happening on the day of Pentecost, that the the spirit pours himself out. 3,000 people repent of their sins, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church is born. Now, there's a lot of confusion today in my mind regarding how Christians relate to these societal broken systems and structures. And You may be aware, I'm certainly aware of of friends of mine, people that I love who get frustrated when issues of of systems and structures are brought to the forefront because there's a push today regarding whether or not racism is an individual thing or whether racism is a societal thing or a structural thing or a systemic thing. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if you're following social media at any and at all today. And I have heard a number of Christians want to push back against that, talking about salvation, you know, what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to preach the gospel. And the gospel for many people has been reduced, sadly, to just an individual transaction between you and between Jesus. Now, the trouble with that is that the church, what we know of as the church, salvation being poured out for the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit coming, was an event that happened at Pentecost. But Luke, in telling that narrative to us, is a master storyteller. And he's told us in Luke 24, which is Luke's first volume of his two-volume work, Acts is volume two, as many of you know. In Luke 24, Luke told us, that the entire Bible, according to Jesus, was about Jesus. It was pointing to him. And so the way Luke actually tells us about this outpouring of the Spirit, he contrasts this narrative in Acts 2 with another narrative that happened in the Old Testament that actually isn't the fall of man. It's the the Tower of Babel narrative from Genesis chapter 11. And allow me just for a second to read this for you because when we talk about Babylon, as we'll get to later, its origins, both its ideologies and its mindset, and of course, in the biblical storyline, it is also the geography of the actual place of Babylon, but it is this idea of Babel. 
And so I wanna read this to you because I think it, cl- it clarified for me this past week while I was working on this message. And then it became very clear when I was preaching it to our people on Sunday. But here's what Genesis 11, um, the first several verses actually have to say. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, I wanted to read that narrative to you. And as I look back over my podcast, I realized I never actually took an episode to sort of walk us through this. And and sadly, that probably was a mistake. So let me at least give you a few minutes of it today. And we'll use this as a springboard going forward. Notice in verse three of Genesis 11, it says that these men say, come, let us make bricks. And it's interesting when you read the phraseology there about what these men are saying to one another when they say, come, let us make. And it's, um, it's a very similar parallel to what we read in Genesis 1 when the Lord himself says, come, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, part of mankind being made in the image of God is that we are tasked and called to do things in a similar fashion to the way the Lord does them. And so I think the author of Genesis knows this and and, and is using the same language to describe what these men are doing, which sounds very similar to something that the Lord did. In fact, in our passage itself, um, in verse four, it says, um, or that they say it again, you know, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city with its tower in the heavens. And then in verse seven, it, it actually says, the Lord says, you know, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. So there's a lot of this interplay going on between the kinds of things the Lord does. Come, let us make. And then here we read, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, what you need to understand is that according to Genesis 1, Mankind was not only made in God's image, but was tasked to spread that reign of God over the face of the whole earth. They were supposed to be his image bearers to spread his image and his reign and his rule across the face of the whole earth. This is God's intention for mankind. But the fall happens between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. And now mankind's intentions, what mankind sees as good, is something very different from what the Lord sees as good. And notice the language used in verse 4 of Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
So the make a name for ourselves so that we don't have to be spread over the face of the whole earth, follow the logic. The Lord made man in his image in order for them to spread his reign and rule across the earth. Mankind decides that's no longer a good thing to him. What he'd rather do is unite himself. What looks good to us now is unite ourselves around what? Around making our own name great. Making a tower to the, that reaches to the heavens to show the world, look at what we've built. Look at the great name we've made for ourselves. Look at the status that we've achieved. We've made, our stale, we made ourselves known to the gods. We've placed this tower that we've built up into the heavens and everyone on the earth is gonna have to take notice. They're gonna see our greatness and they're going to recognize that we are superior. It's this blending, knowing that heaven and earth are coming together. It's man's attempt to raise himself up to the place of the gods so that the world will take notice. And in the, the story in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, instead of having men attempting to ascend to the divine, what we actually have is the Spirit of God coming from heaven down to the earth and is doing what is not... Um, judging the, the world in the way that, that the Lord had to in Babel by confusing languages so that mankind is not that powerfully united in its rebellion against him. Rather, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes from heaven to earth, the people who did not understand one another began to hear the disciples preaching about the mighty works of God in their own tongues. And so what's happening is diversity is what happens as a natural consequence of people who elevate themselves to a position of greatness and most likely begin to look at everyone else who has not elevated themselves to the same level of greatness and sees them as somewhat inferior. And so we recognize that the Lord judges the members in Babel by confusing their languages, but you also need to understand that division and confusion and separation and brokenness are also natural consequences that come when one group elevates themselves to a position of greatness and grandeur above everyone else and claims that the position they've elevated themselves to is not only in accordance with the gods, but it has the gods approval. This is what's happening in Babel, and on the day of Pentecost, it's a complete reversal. What are we centering our claims of, of unity around? It's not how great we are. It's what God has done for the world in Jesus, and language barriers are broken down. And, th and, and divisions are dissolved. This is what a, the bulk of the New Testament is about. And so you and I can't listen to a, a conversion story or, or, or a belief in the gospel and apply it to an individualistic situation. Babel is not an individualistic situation. Babel is the first time on a national, on a systemic, on a social or on a societal level, people collectively, as a collective, as a group, as a nation, as a structure, as a system, whatever word you want to use for it, as a nation, as a system, as a structure, they together are defining what is good and what is evil and are elevating their own entire group or their own entire tribe up to the place of the gods. Babel 
in the way this narrative is told, it says, therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. We will later find the actual nation of Babylon. And the way Genesis 11 is written, I'm, I, I believe anyway that it's a little bit of a jab to the, the confidence and the brilliance and the awesomeness that Babylon thought they were by the Lord referring to it as a place that is just a bunch of Babel. It's a bunch of place where when this language gets mixed with their own views of themselves as great and their collective way of defining good and evil gets blended and mixed in with the divine or in with the gods, you quite literally see throughout human history various kingdoms. Egypt was one of them. Babylon was one of them. Assyria was one of them where the kings of those places actually believed that they were godlike. In fact, I've shared with you in the beginning of this podcast that the reason why Genesis 1 was so profound was because in most other nations around Israel, it was only believed that the king embodied the image of his God. In Genesis 1, we're told that all human beings embody the image So we're not even beginning our discussion about this solidarity within human nature as something on the same footing as the other nations. It simply is not. And so as you work your way through, you find out that Babylon as a place is just any kingdom, nation, system, or structure that gives its own greatness or its own rightness or its own success, divine status or approval. The mindset in Babel in Genesis 11 is that we are going to rise above merely our place on earth and ascend to the heavens, assuming God-like status and significance. And the rest of the world will have to take notice. And the rest of the world will be shown that their ways are far inferior to our own. And we believe we have the support of the gods in the process. That's what Babylon looks like. And in our Old Testaments, particularly as in the very next chapter, the Lord calls a man by the name of Abram. And he tells him that he's going to make his name great. And it's in direct contradiction to the great name that Babylon believes it's made for itself. And that is the mindset of many of the nations that surround Israel. And so without belaboring the point too much, I think it's important for you and for me to to look at an Old Testament book like the book of Daniel. It's a book I've referenced a couple of times, at least in chapter two, maybe chapter three. I definitely know we've spent some time talking about chapter seven, especially in in, uh, walking through the first chapter of Revelation. I know I referenced Daniel seven a handful of times. But what's really, really important to ask then is for those who are God's people, for those who are called by God, what does it actually look like to live faithfully to your God in a kingdom who believes that its collective national identity has elevated itself to the place of the divine. If Babylon Genesis 11 is Babylon of the book of Daniel, then what mindset drives the kingdom of Babylon? Because when I ask the question, where is Babylon? I'm not interested in you getting out a map. I'm interested in us taking Paul's exhortation in the New Testament to not worry so much about the letter of the law and instead look at the spirit behind it. And I'll explain to you really clearly in a few minutes why I think that's important. But before we do, let's just talk about the book of Daniel. 
Daniel was quite possibly in his late teens, early 20s, when he was pulled from his home in Jerusalem and carried off to exile in Babylon. The Lord had promised his own people that if their waywardness and their idolatry did not cease in the way they were living in their land, that he was going to bring a big and powerful nation to come in and to overpower them. Habakkuk doesn't even think that that's a fair deal because Babylon is a wicked, rotten people. And the Lord says to him, I understand they're wicked and they're rotten, but so are you. And because this is the avenue you've chosen, you wanted to center yourselves around your collective whole and elevate your own people as being greater than everybody else, meaning you even mistreated the poor and the widows and the, the, um, the, uh, the little people in your own nation, then I'm gonna let you experience what it is like when that's your ideology, when that's your mindset, because guess what? When that's the way you wanna live, there is always someone with a bigger stick. And so he lets his people experience it in Babylon. And in chapter two of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the king and he has this crazy dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He believes himself to be on par with the gods and he believes that the laws he sets up and the things that he does, the things that he says and the things that he expects not only have his approval, but they have the gods approval. And Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream and he doesn't know what it means. And so his enchanters and his diviners come to him and say, just tell us the dream king and we're gonna, you know, we'll give you the interpretation. We'll tell you what it means. And he tells them, I mean, the dream really disturbed him. So he tells him, no, you're not gonna do that. You're not gonna be able to tell me what my dream, you're gonna conspire together with your, amongst yourselves and you're gonna listen to my interpretation and then you're gonna make up something about it. Or you're gonna listen to my dream and then you're gonna make up some interpretation. No, the only way I'm gonna let you, you know, tell me what my dream means is if you can first tell me what my dream was, then give me the interpretation as well. And they say to him, King, nobody can do that except the gods, but they don't live down here with us. And he's like, I don't care what you say, fine. Get every one of my men together. We're gonna kill you all. And Daniel who was a follower of the Lord in the middle of this difficult time um, is told about this news and basically says, um, don't do this. My, my three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're gonna pray about this situation. God can reveal to us the dream. He does reveal to Daniel the dream and Daniel proceeds to tell the king about it. And he tells him that his dream consisted of there being this giant image and the head was of gold and there's a chest and an arms of silver and there was like a waist of bronze and then iron and then iron mixed with clay. And he listed off all of these um, ideas, the, these, these images basically of this one giant image and these particular parts of this image. He said, this image mighty and exceeding brightness stood before you and its, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on the feet of its iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the stone that struck the mountain or the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And the king was overjoyed that Daniel did this and elevated Daniel to a position of, of honor. And then in chapter three of Daniel, one verse in, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar then made an image of gold 
And King Nebuchadnezzar is setting up an image. And now we're not told if this is a statue of him. Um, what we are told is that it's an image. And the image is something that you and I know from Genesis 1 is that man is supposed to be an image of God. And therefore, we're not supposed to set up things that we direct our gaze to in place of ourselves to represent, you know, the glory and the grandeur of our collective whole. But rather, we are supposed to embody the image of God. And as people, we're supposed to faithfully serve and rule over the world the way God would. But in Babylon, that's not what people do, right? So the king thinks he's godlike or God. And so he erects this huge statue. And he demands that every single person in his kingdom at the appropriate time, when they hear the appropriate music, uh, you know, the, the harp and the lyre and the flute and, you know, various po portions of their, of their time in this nation, when they hear this music, everybody is to, is to assume the appropriate posture toward the national image. And they are supposed to give homage and allegiance to Babylon as the great nation, right? And, and, and in a similar way that Rome did in the first century, and we'll get to this in a minute, but in a similar way that Rome did in offering peace and security and stability to the citizens of the Roman Empire, you simply had to offer allegiance to Caesar. You, 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 know, you trade with money that has his image on the coins and you, know, you interact as a, as a good citizen in a nation that idolizes its own greatness, okay? Now, that's Babylon. And here's Daniel, right, who's an image bearer of God and who knows that and who knows what the Lord has called him to be and to do. And he knows that the mindset of Babel, making a name for oneself, is not what we've been called to do. And so Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in a bit of a bind. Because here you have a national... Um, structure, a, re a religious structure, basically, where, where when you build yourselves a name and a system and a structure and you elevate it to the place of the gods, what, what, and the reason I keep saying the gods is because the, these other nations didn't believe in the Lord as we do. But you need to understand that the way the Old Testament talks about this reality is that they had divine relationship heavenly relationship with the earth and earthly relationship to the heavens. And man was all and has been always trying to bridge that gap. And so when you have a belief that you are elevating yourself to the position of the gods, what you find is that you, you, you start to blend together your national identity as a Babylonian citizen, as a citizen of Rome or, or what have you, with the fact that because you've become so great, you must therefore have divine approval for being the, the kind of country that you are. That, that's just the way Babylon works as a, as a group. We know that this is what Daniel and his friends are being encouraged to do. And unfortunately, his three friends can't do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cannot give allegiance to Babylon and to what Babylon stands for when their allegiance belongs to the Lord. And it's a really subtle breakdown of the way this works, but it says, and then some individuals from Babylon recognize that they don't bow down or they don't, you know, I keep saying they don't assume the appropriate position, but, but my point in, in chapter three of Daniel, it says, 
that, you know, this, that we're going to have a dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up and the people stand before the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And when you hear this music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You will fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. It just, it repeats it over and over and over and over. Golden image, right? Daniel told him that part of his interpretation of the dream that he, as the king of Babylon, was this golden head on this statue and that there are going to be other nations which will come after him, which will be inferior to his nation. But in fact, Babylon at the moment is the most prominent and is the most powerful. And Nebuchadnezzar loved that interpretation of his dream so much, he went out and decided to build that very image and now wants everyone in his empire to bow down and worship it. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this for this reason. Halfway through chapter three of Daniel, his three friends decide that they are unable to do this. And when some men from um, Babylon come and find out that they're not actually able to bow down to the image, they go and they tell the king and the king says, kill him. These are unfaithful citizens to my kingdom. They don't give allegiance to my kingdom. They don't deserve to be a part of my kingdom. They don't deserve to be in a place where they will not honor our collective definition of good and evil. They're not a part of us. So throw them into the fiery furnace. And if you know the story, I'll just get right to the chase. They are tossed into the fire. In fact, some of the men who throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire after it had been heated up so much, those men themselves were killed. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire and are met there by what in Nebuchadnezzar's mind is one who looks like a son of the gods. Their Lord, Yahweh himself, protected them in the midst of the fire. And they came out of the fire, were not harmed. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that the Lord was someone greater than anybody that he had ever faced before. And yet it's not that he turns to the Lord and begins to worship him as a result. No, in fact, he just decides, wow, that must be a much more powerful God. And so um, we're gonna continue to take the same mindset, right? What does he say? Anybody who doesn't abide by my standards in Babylon deserves to be killed, right? That's the way Babylon works. You've elevated yourself to the position of God. You've elevated yourself to the position of judge. And so you decide that anybody who defects from your collective system or your collective structure that remember has divine approval, those people deserve to be killed. And we find out that the Lord himself meets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, does not allow them to be killed. And so then Nebuchadnezzar decides this. He's like, therefore, we see that your God has sent his angel and protected you. You trusted in him at the king's command. And instead of, you know, instead of serve and worship the king and, and any God except their own God, you gave up your bodies and, and he protected you. And so he says in chapter three, verse 29, therefore I make a decree, any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, as a kid, I remember reading that in a Bible story and thinking, wow, isn't that great? Now Nebuchadnezzar is confessing God. No, he is not. Nebuchadnezzar is every bit as violent and destructive as he was before this narrative. 
he is still threatening destruction and death upon anyone who does not admit what he just said is, is right there in front of him. He doesn't see the character of the God who meets his people in suffering, in death, in persecution. He doesn't see that. What he sees is a God who's stronger than fire. But that's not the way the Lord works. And so Nebuchadnezzar is just as violent as he was before, only now he's saying, well, I'm going to kill you then if you don't bow down and worship this God. He's the same king. But faithfulness in his kingdom looks very very different. And so several chapters later in the book of Daniel, we get to chapter seven. And there's a new king of Babylon, Belshazzar. And I'm going to just read for you a section from Daniel chapter seven, and then I want to take us somewhere with it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on the one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings out of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And then verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Daniel's dream, he says, was kind of disturbing to him and we get to that toward the end of chapter seven. But he sees this image of four different beasts that are rising up. And then he hears about this ancient of days sitting on a throne and one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days and receiving dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, many of you know that I grew up in a dispensationalist system of theology, maybe you might call it. It's a way of interpreting the Bible. Some of you are familiar with that. Others of you aren't. 
But throughout history, there have been lots of scholars who try to understand who are these four beasts. We identify them as various kingdoms, just like Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And we are oftentimes looking for where is Babylon, right? Where is Rome? Where is this new beast? Who's the beast? Where's the beast? How are you going to you know, decipher these things? And there are a handful of men, women potentially, who believe that these four beasts um, have come already a, a long time ago. They were probably the kingdom of Babylon, eventually the kingdom of Assyria, um, or, or Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then the Syrians in you know, the 160s BC. In fact, there were some Jewish uh, people known as the Maccabees who revolted and, and had an uprising against the Syrians, believing that they were to you know, take God's control and violence in the same way that Nebuchadnezzar seems to indicate to his people that they're supposed to revolt against these particular kings and these particular nations. There's another group of scholars or, or theologians, men and women, I'm sure, who think, no, Daniel's talking about some futuristic time. There's going to be some you know, one world empire. There's going to be these multiple kingdoms that rise up and, and, and you know, basically become something that is going to set the world up for this second coming of Jesus, where he's going to receive this kingdom and he's going to bring people to heaven with him when he dies. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. And it centers largely around the title of my podcast, where is Babylon? Or maybe it would be centering around when is Babylon? What is Daniel's dream talking about? What is he receiving? And we've spent a lot of time looking at Daniel 7 because according to the book of Revelation, the one coming like the son of man is an event that already took place. And the reason why we know that and the, and the passage that I actually look to to help me understand where is Babylon, what is the kingdom that's actually going on, is that you realize Daniel's promise, this vision that he has about one like a son of man ascending to the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom that will never end, it's in direct response to the reigning and the ruling of four different kingdoms that are wreaking havoc in the world. And don't forget, Daniel is in the middle of one of those kingdoms and he's literally watching the world get, you know, havoc wreaked on it, right? So he said like, the first beast was like a lion. Well, I mean, can you think of any place in the Bible where a nation whose ideology was like a lion, a devouring lion, ever had some people in that kingdom be thrown into a place where lions were given the privilege of trampling them to death? Well, yeah, it's in the book of Daniel. It's probably one of the most famous of the children's Bible stories, although it has nothing to do with children's themes. But Daniel himself, by refusal to pray and acknowledge and give homage and, and allegiance to the king, was tossed to the lions. In fact, that's what happens when you attempt to live faithfully to the Lord in the midst of a nation that has idolized and divinized its own systemic greatness. That's just what happens. And yet what the Bible shows us from beginning to end and what Revelation 11 shows us by identifying Jerusalem with Sodom, Egypt, 
and Babylon is it begins to merge for us that there are ideologies and mindsets that when they are not challenged and when they are not addressed and when they are left to remain in the dark or untouched by the presence of God in in your life, you can very easily become the kinds of people who still have Babylon ideologies running rampant within your life. And so in Matthew 26, let me just read for you a short section because this section actually addresses the issue that we're trying to raise from Daniel chapter 7. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Now, I want to bring you along with what's actually happening in this narrative. You have God's people, Israel, and the religious leaders who embody God's principles and guidelines for the world, seeking false testimony and lies in order to have Jesus killed. These individuals are literally putting forth false witness in order to have Jesus murdered and Jesus knows it. And so they say to him, don't you have, you know, are you not going to say anything? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They tear their robes at the end of this statement. And you and I might think to ourselves, why are they tearing their robes? I'll tell you why. Because when the Jews revolted in the Syrian empire about 160 years before Jesus came, they quoted Daniel 7 as their powerful reason for revolting against the beasts of this world. They believed that when the real bad people come, when the real beastly kingdoms rule the world, then it is going to be up to them as God's special people, as God's faithful followers to pick up the sword and to come out swinging. Jesus looks at these religious leaders and quotes the passage from Daniel 7, which was given to Daniel in response to the beastly kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of, of, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you know what he is saying 
to the religious leaders of Israel. I got this from the Bible Project. Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, used to be a pastor in Oregon and has a podcast with a lot of his sermons on them. His Daniel series is one of the best sermon series I have ever listened to. And so I'm going to give full credit to Tim for anything helpful I'm saying, listening to myself say it all out loud versus what I listened to when he preached it. It's, it doesn't compare. He does it so much better. But he gives an illustration, which I like personally. And my, my boys and I will go to Comic-Con this summer, um, hopefully. Uh, we've gone the past several summers. And uh, if you're into Star Wars or if you're into Avengers or superheroes, you know, people will dress up. My boys always do. A couple years ago, both my boys and one of their friends dressed up like three different versions of Joker from the Batman comics. And uh, I just walked around with them all day with a, with a Batman t-shirt. You know, my, my claim was I'm, I'm just hanging out with these three Jokers all day. And you go to one of these Comic-Con or a Star Wars convention or a Lego convention, and there's a lot of these. And you know, my boys are in their teens, but you've got people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and they're still the kids, right? They're dressed up in their costumes and all that. But if I walked into one of those places and I was dressed up with a black helmet and a black cloak and you couldn't see my face and I had a lightsaber in my hand and I walked up to anybody in that place and I said, I am your father. Everybody in that room is going to know precisely that I am being what character, right? I am Darth Vader. Um, nobody has to explain that to anybody in a Comic-Con. Everybody would know. Actually, before I even spoke, they would know. They would see my costume, right? But they would know that I am being Darth Vader, right? And if, if I was speaking to them or if they overheard me speaking to another person, everybody in that room would also know that if I said the words, I am your father, I'm not only embodying Darth Vader, but the person to whom I am speaking is who? Well, it's Luke, right? Nobody has to explain that to anybody else. You just know it. You just get it because you know the story and I'm telling it to, I'm, I'm reenacting the story with you. So when Jesus says to the religious leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the ones who are here to represent God to the rest of the people of Israel, they are conspiring against Jesus and in so doing are what? Embodying the beast and when Jesus says to them, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He is saying to them, I am your father. And he is saying to them, you're the beast. This is what I'm afraid we don't understand today. And by we, what I'm trying to get at is if religious people, those who are God's own people called by God himself, can get so backwards and have their understanding of the knowledge of good and evil left so unchecked that they actually can embody the destructive nature of Babylon-type kingdoms and beastly kingdoms in the world, then there is no category of collective people on planet Earth 
who could not also find themselves susceptible or buying in to the same misguided ideology that captivated Israel. And it saddens me tremendously when I hear people once again with very simplistic and very shallow and naive understanding about what it means to be God's people and casually apply that to nations and structures today, completely oblivious to the fact that if Jesus's own people were able to see him and hate what they saw, then what makes any of us think that that same unchecked ideology is not or potentially is not still alive and well in the hearts of people today? Now, the reason why I took so much time to try to tie in together how Israel and how religious people themselves can become Babylon, can become beastly in their ideologies, is because it's my belief that that idea is completely foreign to many, many Christians in America in particular. There are many people today who think that somehow because America, and and I've talked about this before, but I'm just going to sum it up here, that because America claimed for itself that they were going to become a nation, right? A system, a structure, a collective. They were going to become a nation built on Christian principles that that somehow means that God is now in support of what America does. So I'm going somewhere with this, so follow me here. If God's own people that he handpicked, that he chose, and he explicitly said, I'm going to bless you, (laughs) if those people could become the beast and could become Babylon, how on earth do we fall into this very naive belief that because some of the founders of our country claim to have founded this country on Christian principles, that that somehow gives us now divine sanction. And let me use some terms for you, okay? We, we call this civil religion, and it is one of the most ungodly things that the Bible communicates is destructive for the world. Um, we, we could call it civil religion, but America has what's a civil religion, and it's a conviction or a myth, honestly, of something like exceptionalism, And that is that the idea that the United States has a unique place in God's plan or that it is in some sense chosen. Now, I doubt that people who are listening to my episode actually believe that. Maybe they do, and and this would offer as a corrective, but I'm trying to also help you have language that you could use in sharing with other members of your family or your circles or just for you to understand this as well. Maybe this is a challenge to you, but I just want to walk through it. So, you know, basically... If you believe we're exceptional, then our role is to spread freedom. That's the backbone of America's national religion. So it arises from this myth of innocence, that America always operates in the world according to the highest principles of ethics and justice, and that when criticized or attacked, America is the innocent, righteous victim. Now, I'm actually pulling some of these quotes here from Michael Gorman's book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, and I'm excited to share with you that in several weeks, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Gorman about his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, and we'll be able to air that on the podcast sometime in the summer. 
And I'm very thankful for, excited for you to get to hear him. And I'm, I'm just excited to interact with him a little bit too. Um, you know, then next comes um, nationalism. The belief that one's nation, in this case, the U.S., is superior to all other nations. Nationalism is extreme devotion to one's country as the greatest nation on earth and therefore worthy of nearly unqualified and sometimes thoroughly unqualified allegiance. Now, we have something that I did as a child in this country called the Pledge of Allegiance. We would place our hand over our heart and we would say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, you need to understand that when you use the word allegiance, the word allegiance is a very, very specific and strategic word. It is not a word that Christians can use lightly because it's a word that Jesus demands of us as followers of the kingdom of God. We give him our allegiance. And honestly, we ought to read the book of Daniel to see how does someone faithful to God live in a land where God's you know, concerns are not the concerns. The reason why civil religion is such a damnable belief is because you allow the civil agendas and the civil ideologies to become one with God's ideologies. And now you can't separate them. And so in Babylon, for instance, when music would be played, when, when you, know, you were to assume the appropriate posture, right, for the, 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 the allegiance to the national image, all right, let's, let's take that ideology for just a second, okay? At the appropriate time, when you hear the appropriate music, you are to assume the appropriate position in honor and allegiance to the nation's image. That is what happened in Daniel chapter three. At the appropriate time, when you hear the appropriate music, you are to assume the appropriate bodily position in honor to and allegiance toward the national image. Okay, that's what's happening. Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just laying it out there for you. So let's fast forward several thousand years into the United States. We have a national image. It's an American flag. We have, at appropriate times, certain music that is played around that flag. It's called sporting events. It's something that could probably unite much of our culture and has for the duration of, of its time. Like we love our sports and I love sports too. So I get this at least on a personal level. But at the appropriate time, the beginning of a sporting event, when the appropriate music begins to be played, right? Someone singing the Star Spangled Banner. You are to assume the appropriate position, the body posture. You will stand take your hat off, put your hand over your heart, or some people will stand with their hands behind their backs, however, you know, whatever you want to do, and you will give allegiance to and honor to the national image, which is a giant flag, typically at the end of one section of the field or wherever you happen to be. If you're indoors, it's a flag you know, on the high school gymnasium wall, whatever. I want you to stop and ponder this for a moment. 
because we had a situation a few years ago with a football quarterback who felt like the freedoms that we are celebrating by giving allegiance to the national symbol were not being properly attributed to some of his black brothers and sisters. And so as a way of showing that his allegiance wasn't just to this, you know, blind acceptance of the national image. He felt like he wanted to challenge the image. And I want to tell you and help you understand the irony and yet the destructive, scary reality facing what he received in response. What he received, his name is Colin Kaepernick. And I watched people on all sides of the political partisan discussion, right? People whose identities are wrapped up in which political party they're a part of. And sadly, that should not be the focus of Christians. It, it certainly is the focus of American citizens. But when you take the name of Jesus, you have to understand that political party ideologies are not in line with the kingdom of God. So this isn't a political statement or a liberal agenda Strangely and scary enough, the threat that Daniel's three friends received by not properly assuming the correct posture at the right moment, they were to be killed. They were not worthy to be considered citizens of Babylon. That's the story that actually happens in the Bible. And I know that people don't like to say this a lot if, if you are a conservative or a Republican or, you know, I've been accused so many times of being a liberal, right? Because so many people's minds think that if you could challenge anything that a Republican believes or that President Trump does, that I automatically must be one of these left-wing liberals. And it's really sad to me that we live in a world right now where people think you can only be one of two parties. My identity is not found in a political party. Therefore, I feel the freedom to critique, as we talked on the podcast with Tim Gombas several weeks ago, I have the freedom to receive critique and give critique in anything that I see that doesn't line itself up with Jesus and his kingdom. But when the president of our country caught wind of what Colin Kaepernick was doing, instead of listening to what he was saying, or instead of watching how wrapped up we are, of course, Trump was wrapped up in this, right? His whole mantra is make America great again make a name for ourselves. I'm sorry, but the language is identical to Babel. And he wrote this on Twitter. Well, I think it's good, you know, the, the discipline and what the NFL was trying to do or what people were trying to force the NFL to do. I don't think people should be staying in locker rooms. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem or you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country. Now, Trump didn't go so far as to say Colin Kaepernick wasn't allowed to be in the country, but he's trying to say as much as he can within the law, maybe you shouldn't be in the country. Assume the appropriate posture at the appropriate time to give full allegiance to everything we believe we stand for, or we will remove you from citizenship in this land. This is what's happening. And I'm sorry, but when you blend the idea of Christian with the idea of American nationalism, you get a God awful destructive 
force. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has to be aimed at stripping people away from this dual identity that they've blended into one. And Greg Boyd in his Myth of a Christian Religion, which I probably have quoted before, but I'd like to quote again, says this, while all idols instill a particular version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil within us, religion often inclines people to give their version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil divine authority. And while all idols incline people to act aggressively to protect and advance their good and resist what they judge to be evil, religion often gives this good and evil eternal significance. Religion significantly ups the ante on idolatry and judgment. So it is not at all surprising that religion has often inspired violence throughout history and continues to do so today. For the same reason, religious idolatry is particularly resistant to the kingdom of God. It's no coincidence that the main opposition Jesus faced in establishing the kingdom came from the guardians of the religious status quo, the Pharisees, religious scribes, and the like. So it should not surprise us that the main opposition to advancing the kingdom in our own day comes from contemporary guardians of, guardians of the religious status quo. The most dangerous allure today is the belief that one's collective whole, one's collective identity, collective stance, one's nation, one's system, one's structure that was put in place can be made to be on par with the gods or with God or God forbid with Jesus when some of the same realities that plagued Babylon are still working under the surface. We looked at this in episode four at the, um, you know, the competing creation narrative and the myth of redemptive violence. The myth that with just a bigger stick and a, a bigger gun and more troops, you can get your will to be accomplished. I want you to understand that that is an ungodly and it is an incredibly unchristian stance. So people like to think that this country was founded on Christian principles, but it's ideology of go to war when you have a problem, threaten people with tear gas when they do not do what you think they should. If the governors will not cramp, clamp down on, on the riots going on in their streets because they're weak, then our president gives the order to tear gas people. Like I, I just want the reality to sink in because what's going unchecked in his heart and what's going unchecked and the reason why I challenge Christians all the time in this civil religion idea is because what we support, we are giving approval to. It's impossible to do that. And we don't have to buy it wholesale. We can say that there are certain things that my particular party does that I think are valuable and valid, but we're having this tremendously difficult time in our culture today for listening to anything of an opposing perspective without getting so defensive that we dismiss the entire thing out of hand. Here's the catch. If Jesus is coming to deal with darkness in the world by shining light into it, and if Jesus is coming to restore brokenness to the world by healing, and if Jesus has come to forgive sins and to set people free, he's come to do it both on an individual and on a societal level. And so we get all confused when we think that the only issues that matter are social 
or we get confused when we think the only issues that matter are individual. This is a classic case of the either or fallacy because there is no one on the planet who does not have elements of the darkness that Jesus' light has come to dispel living inside of them. And there is no place on planet earth where you cannot look with your own eyes and see the darkness in the world out there that Jesus has also come to dispel. But Jesus doesn't come to get rid of the darkness by blasting the darkness with a bigger stick. He invites you into his light to be healed of your darkness and brokenness and fallenness and Babylonness yourself first. And while he is healing you and in the process of him healing you, he sends you out to embody his very presence and reality and bringing restoration, light, healing, wholeness, and hope to the darkness that's out in our world. It is not an either or. It is a both and. It's always been a both and. But I'm afraid when real situations call for real repentance or real situations call for real calls to action and people dig in their heels because we found our identities in voting a particular way or we found our identities in being comfortable with who's in the presidency, we cannot hear Jesus's call for us to follow him. And the biggest question that I want to ask is just this, what would the kingdom of God stand to lose if nobody followed the constitution anymore, what would the kingdom of God stand to lose if the Republican wasn't in the presidency? What would the kingdom of God stand to lose? What would Jesus stand to lose? What would the church stand to lose if tomorrow every one of your political enemies took over and began to run the world? What would the kingdom of God lose? The answer is nothing, absolutely nothing. And do you know how much time and energy is wasted today defending a position that doesn't need defended? Revelation in chapter 18 will say, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The exhortation to the Christians in Revelation, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, the book of Revelation wasn't written to Babylon. It wasn't written to Rome. It wasn't written to the world. It was written to the church saying these are the mentalities and the mindsets that are driving the people who will one day be judged. I don't want you to be part of that system. But we've got to stop defining the system as I'm conservative or he's liberal and it's the liberals that are the really wicked people in the world. That's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, if they had a candidate for president, well, let's put it in their terms, right? Do you know what they wanted their Messiah to campaign with? Do you know what Israel's campaign slogan from the first century would have been? You ready for it? Make Israel great again. Get these filthy Romans out of here so that we can reign as God's people and we want God to bring swift and quick judgment on all of our enemies so that we can reign supreme. Yeah, cheers from the crowds. Woohoo! And how does God reign? God reigns on a cross 
God reigns from a position of weakness. This is the one thing over and over and over and over that our current president despises. He has said it. I can't count the number of times. He will just insert the adjective weak to describe governors during coronavirus who are not ruling with the iron fist that Trump would want them to rule with. And he just calls them weak in a derogatory sense. You can't control writers with all your weakness. But weakness is what the kingdom of God is built on. Not being a pushover, but recognizing as we've seen, we've seen riots happen. We've seen people burn down buildings. We've even seen churches burned. And then sadly, the other day, our president walked across a lawn after firing tear gas into those crowds and walked over in front of a church and held up a Bible. Now you need to understand as a Christian that ought to offend you. It ought to bother you. I don't think it means we start lobbing grenades and tear grass into our president's face because we'll get caught right up into the same Babylon-type system that is destroying our world right now. But the fact of the matter is the Bible is not a symbol you hold up in defense of your political ideology. The Bible is not a symbol that you hold up to justify your use of force because in the Bible, the Bible itself condemns those kinds of actions. And it condemned them on the cross when the Lord brought about his victory of conquering through weakness. And so what I want to do, I know this episode is getting kind of long. I just want to read for you a couple journal entries of things that I've written um, in the last year or so. Actually, I found one here from June 1st, 2019. Just some thoughts I want to share with you that I felt at the time kind of tied things together. For Revelation 1 to say that Jesus made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, means that the kingdom to which we owe our primary allegiance is the one created by the Lamb. Furthermore, Revelation 5 boasts of the praise due to this Lamb for ransoming people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Because this is the case, nationalistic tendencies within any country cannot stand for a Christian. A Christian can be patriotic, meaning they can be proud of their country and want the absolute best for it and for its citizens. But nationalism doesn't stop there. Nationalism truly believes not only that one should take pride in one's country, but that one's country truly is superior than all other countries and therefore is entitled to more special treatment than other places. It prefers one's own nation to to other nations and seeks to enforce policies that will uphold this view. Such a stance is untenable for the Christian. How can a Christian embrace their participation in a kingdom that includes people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and at the same time prefer one particular nation, their own, to all others? I'm sorry, but this is an impossible position to hold. Christian allegiance and loyalty to the Lamb demands that we choose one or the other. We cannot hold both. Now, with that said, one can certainly be patriotic, proud of one's country and what it stands or fights for. But being truly patriotic means that you are willing to look at one's own weaknesses and flaws in addition to your strengths in order to truly see it become all that it can be. 
In our current cultural moment, those who push back so violently against anyone daring to speak even one critical word toward America or the flag or the troops or the Constitution or the laws or whatever has adopted a nationalistic stance, not a patriotic one. Patriots are not afraid of having their weaknesses exposed. They want their country to be as great as it can be, and they are not offended that their country isn't already there. Nationalists, on the other hand, refuse to look at their weaknesses. They only see the strength and honor inherent in their place as a nation and are unwilling to see all the damage and brokenness that their strength caused others who are not like them. Martin Luther King Jr. was patriotic and therefore had words of rebuke that our nation needed to hear. Those who listened to him were likewise patriotic and wanted America to be the truly great place that they knew it could be. Those who opposed him, sadly, very many white conservative Christians led the way here, wanted to believe America was already great and therefore could not be honestly critiqued. When Trump stands up today and touts make America great again, he receives cheers from conservative Christians. Those who oppose Trump get frowned upon by these same conservative Christians. But the reason many oppose Trump is because many of the very things that supposedly made America great caused great difficulty for many other people groups, women, African-Americans, other minorities, etc. Was America ever great for them? Or is this mantra one that supports white middle-class upper men? upper middle class like men, men like Trump. There are eerie similarities between Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue and the people of his empire were to bow down to each day and many nationalists' insistence that all those in football stadiums stand for the national anthem. Both have an image that is set up, one presumably a statue and the other a flag. President Trump said that even those who kneel and supposedly dishonor the flag by doing so have no business being citizens of this country. Really? That's nationalism, and it's condemned outright in the book of Daniel. Patriotism, however, can openly recognize that while freedom certainly were granted for some people, oppression became the norm for others. Those choosing to kneel during the national anthem are not disrespecting the flag and what it stands for. It stands for freedom, right? Right. They are choosing to kneel then because the freedoms that we honor when we stand for the national anthem aren't being rightly honored for everyone, particularly women and people of color. The patriotic person hearing this will say, you know, you're right. What can we do to more properly honor the freedoms our soldiers fought so hard for so that everyone can experience it? He will say this because he really believes America fought for freedom and he wants real freedom, whatever it takes. The nationalist simply gets offended that America is not already seen as great or flawless or untouchable and then makes those who kneel out to be the enemy. They are not the enemy, though. Unfair distribution of freedom is the enemy. I've seen this in my own life. I have been an insecure person for most of my life. And as such, I could not handle having my weaknesses or inadequacies exposed by others. I'd fight them tooth and nail, blame them for the problems they were having with me, or just scream at them 
and then give them the silent treatment. I was blind to my own weaknesses, and my own view of myself could not sustain seeing myself as anything but perfect. So I refused to look. I refused to see in myself anything that might not be as perfect as I would like it to be. And because I couldn't and wouldn't look inward, any critique of me was met with anger and rejection. How dare she question my motives? How dare he critique all my positive efforts? The trouble, of course, was that no one was saying that what I had done wasn't important. What they were trying to show me was that it was incomplete. I was not the do-everything-right-the-first-time kind of guy I like to think I was. I needed help. I needed to see things from other people's perspectives. I needed to recognize that the ideas I had, which looked good to me at the time, actually had blind spots in them, and that I had hurt others in the process of doing what I thought was right. And you know what? That's human. That's all I am. Human. Of course I made selfish decisions. Of course people got hurt in the process. I'm not proud of that, and I certainly didn't intend to hurt other people, but they were hurt all the same. Okay, so then what do I do? Well, that depends on what I want to have happen in this situation. Do I want to be proven right? Do I want others to know that every decision I made was spot on and above being questioned? Or do I want to become the kind of person who learns, through my mistakes if necessary, how to really love others as well as I love myself? The answer to this question, believe it or not, is the same framework used to describe whether people are nationalistic or patriotic. Do they want to become great? Patriotic. Or do they want to already be seen as great? Nationalistic. Can America be critiqued? Patriotic. Or are her ways above critique? Nationalistic. Can someone protest the way America distributes its freedoms by refusing to stand for the national anthem? Patriotic. Or is the flag that represents those freedoms an unquestionable icon that deserves our greatest respect regardless of the way actual freedom is distributed in its name? nationalism. We can't have it both ways. What I had to wrestle through in that post that I wrote down uh, June 1st, actually, of last year was something that I'm trying to explain to you on this podcast. There was darkness and insecurity and brokenness and dysfunction inside me, inside me, all by myself, who could not handle critique that other people saw or criticism that other people gave as they were simply trying to help me see better, I shut them out. They became the enemy of me. Instead, they were my greatest support because they knew what I could become if I would only have the ears to hear them. This is the challenge Jesus is addressing. When he says so many times in the gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We've talked about this before. He's addressing the reality of idolatry. 
Because when you worship things that have no mouths, you know, they have mouths but they can't speak, and they have eyes but they can't see, and they have ears but they can't hear, those who worship them become like them. What you're seeing is that I'm worshiping this veneer. I have to cover over myself. I have to reach for myself and define certain ideas in my life that are going to let me feel good about myself at the end of the day. And anytime somebody pokes into that and shatters the veneer, I feel vulnerable and open and naked before them. And I typically come out swinging because it's no longer considered a good thing for me to be vulnerable and naked. So what do I do? I blast them for having the audacity to point that out to me instead of recognizing that maybe what they're trying to do is help me to become more free. If that's what Jesus is interested in, then even something as big sweeping as what do you do with who kneels for the flag and who disrespects our country and who that, that's the societal darkness and brokenness that people have now married their individual insecurities to ramping up. It makes a person feel good at the end of the day, doesn't it? To think that what their culture and their collective and their nation are doing is in support of what God wants them to do. Doesn't that make everybody feel better at the end of the day? Do you realize that it's possible to look to God for approval and support because you feel insecure about yourself? Make sure you're using God to support the real you and not building up your own version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you think he'll be approving of. Therefore, you feel like you have the right to be accepted in his presence. It is amazing to me how still unchecked this tree of the knowledge of good and evil goes on in the hearts of so many people. Because Christians, of all people, who should know that it is only when the the self-sacrificial, compassionate love of a father is brought to us through the person of Jesus, that he breaks through the hard-heartedness, he breaks through the fear, he breaks through the shame of our own lives and transforms us from a place of love. And yet in a social setting, in in a societal level, at a systemic level, at a corporate level, it's amazing how much we don't do that. Christian people can be some of the most judgmental people on the planet. Do you know why that's the case? It's the same thing as it is with civil religion. We now think that our collective ideologies and our collective ideas are put on par with the gods and now they have divine backing. So we get this very, very crazy idea that what God really wants for us What Jesus wants for us is for us to be his spokesman to the world, telling them all about God's standards of good and evil. But that's not what he's called us to do. What he's called us to do is to receive his love into our hearts and to live in love, rooted in love, receiving our identity, receiving our strength, receiving our our abilities in this world from him the way he always wanted us to from the tree of life in the garden. Instead, we chose to take it for ourselves and people are still doing it today. We are taking for ourselves these ideas of good and evil. And now we've just slapped some Christian language onto them and said, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of more things that are now considered good and a whole bunch of more things that are considered evil. And we gather up all the ones that we can and we align ourselves with all the the definitions of good that we personally abide by. And then we label all the things that God must think are evil and wicked by all the things that we don't do that somebody else does. And we go around judging people People who we believe meet our standards of what is good and what is evil, we are judgmental, we are critical, and we are the one 
people who refused to do the only thing God expected of us. And that was, we worry about us, about obeying him. And what was his command? That you would love one another. What we do instead is think that our role is to judge one another. And I've never met a person who is capable of loving me and judging me at the exact same time. You can't do it. It doesn't work. What does he say? Judgment is mine. I will repay. That's not your job. Your job is to offer the hope of the gospel. Your job is to offer love and compassion. Your job is to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Stop playing the game. And that's what I think has happened in Jesus's day. And it is still happening today, especially as we blend this idea of civil religion. And that is that we are playing the game. We think deeply at root that our job is to align ourselves most closely with God's definition of the good and to uh, avoid ourselves you know, as much as possible from his definition of the evil, but we still play the game. So we go around, and I say we because I grew up in the church. I have remnants of this all through my being. But we side, we feel good about ourselves when we can surround ourselves and embody the realities that we believe are good and avoid all the things that we believe are evil. But when we receive life from that, we receive fullness from that, we take that into us, right? Like Eve did with the apple. At the end of the day, we begin to look around and say, oh yeah, I'm doing a pretty good job. I mean, God must be fairly impressed with all the good things that I do, the way that I vote, the way that I exercise myself in my neighborhood, the way that I read my Bible every day. We've give, coming up, come up with a list of things that we believe are good that just so happen to very closely mirror all of the things that we already do. And then we have a separate list of all the things that are evil that God really must hate. And they just so happen to mirror the kinds of things that we never do. And so very, very subtly, we begin to play this game where we expect God to come and to praise all of the people who are doing all the good and to condemn and critique all the people that we believe are doing all the evil. This was the same mindset of the religious leaders in Jesus's day. They expected that when a Messiah came, he was going to praise them for all the good and the righteousness that they exemplified. And he was going to blast and critique and condemn all of the wicked, rotten sinners in the world who hadn't taken God's command seriously enough. And guess what Jesus did? He didn't do either one of those. He didn't praise the good and he didn't critique the evil because that's man's game. That's a game we invented when we took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus doesn't play that game. What is Jesus's description of us? It is not that we are fundamentally good or that we are fundamentally bad. Jesus's assessment of us is that we are fundamentally loved. And so let me ask you a question. Of the two groups, those who believe they are fundamentally good and are doing all the good things versus those who might see themselves as evil who are doing all the evil things, which one of those groups is going to be more bothered if Jesus walks in and doesn't play by those rules? It's going to be all the religious people. It's going to be all those who at the end of the day really think that the blessings they are experiencing are because of them. All of their hard work, 
all of their efforts, all of their righteousness, all of their sacrifice. And what does Jesus say? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We have a world today that needs mercy, that needs hope, that needs Jesus. And as a church that has been empowered with the Holy Spirit, we need to be a people who truly embody the pattern of the Christ. We truly embody the life that Jesus lived when he was here, who wept over his religiously idolatrous city. You realize, right, that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, the beast. He wept because he genuinely loves them. And it's their own unwillingness to be loved in the way he chooses to do it that prevents them from entering into his kingdom because they're still clinging too tightly to all the things they're doing right. You never think about it like that, have you? That Jesus calls us to repent, not just from the things that we do that we think he thinks are wrong, but we also need to repent of all of our rightness. That I think is a message that could preach today. And this last several minutes, I've been pulling these ideas from a book by Greg Boyd as well called Repenting of Religion. And I would highly encourage any of you to go out and buy it. It will change your life. I've talked long enough on this podcast. I hope it was helpful. My mind is still swirling with all sorts of things. Some of you have reached out and have commented that you like an episode or you've emailed me or so on. Thank you for that. That It, it is an, an uplift. There are days you, I can't even count where I'm feeling particularly down or feeling a little bit overwhelmed about the things that are going on in my world. And I get a note from one of you and it, it just changes the tone of the day. So thank you for that. Um, again, I, I can't express as much uh, enough how much I, I really benefit from you all who listen in. Thank you again for giving the podcast a rating or a review. If, if you haven't done that yet, um, take a few minutes if you would. That would be another gift to me. Uh, but it also helps others to find the podcast if they catch in um, on what you're saying. I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you letting me work my thoughts out with you and share with you some journal entries and other things. There'll be more to say as time rolls on. But if you are listening to this in real time, it, it, is, it is timely. And I sense that it was a time to really work out some of my own thoughts with you over the podcast. So appreciate you all. Hope you have a great week. Talk to you next time.